Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, God bless you. It's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. We are now at the tail end of our series, In the Word. We've been asking, what does it mean to take the Bible seriously as the Word of God in a post-enlightenment skeptical culture thousands of years after the Bible was written with all kinds of legitimate good questions to wrestle with about what authority does this book have and where does it come from and can I trust it? And we've looked at great kings of the Hebrew Scriptures, King Josiah, who rediscovered his Bible and began to apply it to the people's lives. We looked at the story of King David, who, who saw God's hand in nature and then found God's, God's revelation in Scriptures. And last week, we looked at the Shema, the famous teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures, that the commandments that God gave them were, was to be upon their heart, were to be upon their heart. And today I want to wrap up the, the, this series with one final question about how we trust the Bible and what does it mean to trust the Bible. And again, we're going to go to passage, passages in the Bible in which the writers of the Scriptures talk about the Scriptures that came before them, which would have served as their Scriptures. And I want to, I want to kind of observe the fact that I am caught between two voices. And you may, you may experience this as well. I'm caught between two voices in my life and in my world. The first voice was one I discovered very early on when I was a teenager, and I belonged to a youth group at a church. And during the summer, uh, my youth group went to a summer camp, and all the best summer camps were run by the Baptists. And so I went to a Baptist Bible summer camp. And uh, at Bible camp, there was a, a fiery and impassioned preacher telling us that we needed to change our lives and live right and get straight with God and be careful. And other good things. Look both ways before you cross the street. Uh, you know, don't use the, the knife that was in the peanut butter and the jelly. All kinds of rules. And uh, at the end of his talk, I began to ask him questions. Because I had, I had thoughtful and serious concerns uh, about the Bible. And about uh, how he could be so strident in what he was telling me that I needed to do. And I asked a series of questions. And I don't remember what the questions were, nor his answers. I remember what he said at the end of it, though. He started to get tired of me. And he said to me, Jim, sometimes you have to stop asking and just believe. And that's one of the worst pieces of advice you can give to someone. That is a terrible piece of advice. It's exactly what all cult members have done. They have stopped asking questions and just started believing. And it's actually the, the intellectual curiosity to ask why that often drives us to pursue truth that will ultimately lead us to find Jesus. You should never tell someone to stop asking questions because I had valid concerns about the Bible itself. I, I wanted to know, why is it that Matthew says that there's one angel at the tomb of Jesus and Luke says that there's two? What do, what do you do with, with things like that? Um, I, I wanted to know, uh, what do you do with the fact that in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, the advice I'm giving you right now is from me, not from God. And that's in the Bible, which we call the Word of God. What am I supposed to do with that? And, and if you look back at the history of the world, there are fascinating 
speculations and questions raised by thoughtful people that are valid questions that deserve answers. There was a famous uh, philosopher in the Middle Ages named Al-Ghazali, and he, he wondered about the fact that if you had this perfect God up in heaven, and you believe that God had created a perfect book for you to read, hadn't you then accidentally created a second God? Because now you have two separate perfect things. Isn't there a risk that you might idolize the scriptures? And these are all valid and important questions. And, and so I didn't, I didn't end up sitting well with Baptist Bible Camp. I was not invited back to be a, a counselor or a speaker myself. But on the other hand, there was another tension that I wrestled with, and I discovered it in my first year of seminary. Went to Princeton Seminary, and there was an Old Testament professor there who relished the opportunity to wreck the faith of young seminarians. She just enjoyed showing that the Bible was edited, that it was biased, and that it was consequently suspect. I had one friend who in his first year, first semester of seminary had to face questions that he had never asked before. No one had ever encouraged him to ask questions before. He was, he was excellent at Bi Baptist Bible Camp, but in his first, first semester at seminary, he was wrecked by Old Testament 101. And after his first semester, he dropped out. And that was the end of his pursuit of professional ministry. I... I didn't quite sit well with, with her either because I knew, I knew what the Bible said. There's this, this passage uh, that Paul writes to Timothy in which he says, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, when Paul writes this, this letter isn't itself scripture. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures that, that would have been his Bible. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The, the apostles held Scripture in high esteem. Jesus himself held the Hebrew Scriptures as authoritative. And, and when you read the letters of the apostle Peter, he begins to speculate that the writings of Paul are themselves like Scripture. So that there, in, in the biblical worldview, there is this sense that the Bible has a significant authority and claims on our life. So I was caught between seminary and Baptist Bible camp, and I wasn't sure where to land. But I remember in my last year of seminary watching a, a very thoughtful seminary president giving a lecture, and a student in that uh, lecture who had definitely done well at Bible camp really grilled him and pushed him hard with all kinds of questions about why he didn't trust the Bible more, why the president of the seminary didn't trust the Bible more. And this president and professor, who was a wise and thoughtful man, looked at this young student and with a kind-hearted smile said, when the day comes that you cling to Jesus as fiercely as you cling to your Bible, you will have a faith that changes the world. So as we look at the scriptures again today, that's what I'm after. I want to cling to Jesus as fiercely as I cling to the Bible. And as a consequence, have a faith that changes the world. Let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about that. First, pray with me. 
Lord, I thank you that you have spoken to us in history, that you have walked the earth and revealed yourself to us, that you've spoken into the world in a human voice. I thank you that the witnesses of your appearances and your miracles captured those sufficiently for us to read and understand and believe. So I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would open up our hearts to meaningful and thoughtful faith that we might cling to you and change the world. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's uh, look at a passage in the Bible. I want to look at the Gospel of John chapter 1. Because in this text, John plays with the relationship between the Word of God uh, and God's speech and God incarnate. Uh, this is in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And as John writes this, he's intentionally making parallels to three different things. So as I read this, See if you can tell what John is thinking of, what's in the background of John's thought as he writes this. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the Greek word that means word here, that is translated word in English, the Greek word is logos. And logos is a rich and meaningful term in the first century world. John was a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus had a special relationship with the word logos. Because about 500 years before John, there was a philosopher who lived in Ephesus, whose name was Heraclitus. And Heraclitus spent a lot of time talking about the logos. And he said the logos is the foundational reason beneath all creation and all being that gives everything order and sense. The word logos in this sense, is a sort of a philosophical beginning of everything. It's the, the basis for all reason. Logos can also be translated reason. It's the, the root of our word logic, logos, logic. And it actually can be translated word or speech. So, so the word actually has a, a rich uh, diversity of interpretations. Heraclitus said there's a, a foundation at the beginning of the world that gives everything order and structure called the logos. And, and it's it's something we're all aware of, but we don't necessarily recognize it when we see it. And so John, living in Ephesus, realizes that the people of Ephesus know about Heraclitus. He's kind of their hometown hero. And there, there's probably talk of the logos that still exists in the, the thoughtful uh, culture. Was, you know, they sit around and drink coffee in the afternoons. They probably still talk about this. It's kind of like in Glendora. You can go to a restaurant and order a sandwich on uh, a menu that's called the Brian Clay Sandwich. And... If you don't know who Brian Clay is, you might not know what you're getting there. Brian Clay was an athlete who went to Azusa Pacific University and eventually went on to the Olympics and won the gold medal in the decathlon. He was the athlete of the world, and his uh, face is on the front of the Wheaties box. He also was one of the founding board members of our church. And he has since moved, uh, moved away, but there is still a restaurant where you can order the Brian Clay sandwich. Now, you don't have to know him to go into that restaurant and see on the menu Brian Clay sandwich. And you don't have to know him to order that sandwich. In fact, you could sit around the table in that restaurant saying, who's Brian Clay? And the person you're eating with could say, I don't know, but apparently he really liked avocados. I don't know. So in other words, he, he's a hometown hero whose legacy still exists, and the influence of him 
his influence could still be discussed even by people who don't know him. Well, that was the, the nature of Heraclitus in Ephesus in John's day. So when John starts talking about the Logos, his congregation members and the people in Ephesus would say, oh yeah, we know what you're talking about. That's our guy. We, we believe in the Logos. We believe there is a foundational reason that lies beneath everything. And that is an intentional parallel with which John begins. The Logos, the firm foundation that lies beneath everything, was with God in the beginning and was God in the beginning. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, John is intentionally making a second parallel here. And you may recognize this as you read it. This is a parallel to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation of the world. John is beginning his story not with the birth of Jesus, but with the creation of everything. At the beginning of the world, the, the logos, the foundation of everything was. It was God, and it was with God. He's wrestling with the Trinity there. And, and this, was, this was at the beginning. And, and God spoke, and light came to be. The first thing that God creates in the book of Genesis is light. God speaks, and there's light. And here in John 1, the Logos exists at the beginning of the world and then comes into the world as light. And again, the word Logos can also be translated speech. So as God speaks, light comes into the world. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Uh, in fact, not only would we not recognize God when he walked among us, we would crucify him in the end. But look at how clearly this is a parallel to the teachings of Heraclitus that John and his congregation would have known. Heraclitus at one point wrote, Although this Logos is eternally valid, yet men are unable to understand it. Not only before hearing it, but even after they have heard it for the first time. Though all things come to pass in accordance with the Logos, men seem quite without any experience of it. John's very clearly and intentionally drawing a parallel between the Greek context and the world around him and the Hebrew context of the, the creation story. And then verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And you start to get the sense there, if you don't already know, he's talking about Jesus. And so the third intentional parallel that John is making is to the the manger scene, the infancy narratives, where God actually comes into the world by being born into the world. So these are the, the three things that uh, John is tipping his hat to. A Greek philosopher who talked about the logos that was the foundation of everything. The, the Hebrew scriptures, which say that in the beginning, the, the foundation of everything spoke and light came into the world. And then the manger scenes, the narratives in which that, that light that came into the world took on human form and walked among us. And that's John's picture of God speaking into the world. Now, look at what that says about God. God is the firm 
one foundation that lies beneath everything, the reason for everything, the thing that gives the world order. And yet he stepped into the world in a way in which he was not recognized. His birth was a mess. The manger scene was a mess. There was no room for him at the inn. He grew up re rejected by religious elites and crucified by political officials. His death was a mess. The story of Jesus' life is not what you expect of a Messiah. The Hebrew people were expecting a Messiah to, to rise up like a general coming down out of the clouds on a chariot, strong and powerful, unquestionable, and championing the world. Kind of the, uh, kind of the, uh, the, the leader of, of Bible camp, really. Speaking perfect British English for some reason. Right? The, the image of the Messiah was this, this perfect figure. And yet, the solid foundation of everything when it was born into the world was an absolute mess. It was unrecognized by its creation. God is as firm as the foundation of the earth and yet as messy as a manger. And what's true of God is true of God's word. And, and we, we do well to embrace the scriptures on God's terms, not on our own. The scriptures are as firm as the foundation of the earth and yet as messy as a manger. And God likes it that way. Now, now this is where a lot of people get, get caught off guard. This is where a lot of people get hung up on the scriptures. They, they go to the Bible and they want it to either be perfect or they want it to be a wreck. And, and the scriptures are neither. The scriptures are as firm as the foundation of the earth and yet as messy as a manger. Uh, and I'll show you what I mean. In the Bible, there are over 40 different authors, 40 different voices, and they're very different. You have voices like Jesus, God incarnate, speaking God's word, and yet you also have prophets, people who are hearing from God and saying, this is what God says. And then you have people speaking from practical wisdom, like Paul saying, this doesn't really come from me, this doesn't really come from God, this is just my idea. Or like the book of Proverbs or the book of James where somebody just seems to be giving practical wisdom. There are all kinds of types of literature in the Bible. There's history in which people are telling events either that they witnessed or that they've heard about from somebody else. There's prophecy in which someone claims they are hearing directly from God and speaking God's word. There's apocalyptic literature like the book of Revelation, which is deeply allegorical and filled with imagery and not at all meant to be taken literally. The, the modern reading of Revelation, like there's going to be some kind of giant dragon beast walking down Main Street, is absurd. It's a supernatural book. It's not science fiction. And if you know how apocalyptic literature works, you know how to read it. But it's a different kind of literature than history. There are parables in the Bible in which people like Jesus craft stories which are fictional, but which have a moral point that he intends to make. There's poetry in the Bible. And poetry is a different kind of literature altogether. People like to say, uh, well, is the Bible true? Yes, the Bible's true, or no, the Bible's not true. Poetry is not true or false. That's not a category that poetry answers to. So there are all kinds of types of literature in the Bible, and they don't all read the same way, and they shouldn't all be read the same way. And that is an absolute mess. I understand there are people out there who just want it to be clear-cut, black and white, dried straightforward, and they don't want to deal with questions or ambiguities. They want Bible camp the way it used to be. That's just not how the Bible reads. The Bible is as messy as a manger. And yet, 
Jesus himself, God and man, would say, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, which was the Bible of his day, not disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus speaks of the law as being firm as the foundation of the earth. And we have to live in between these two twin realities. The Bible is, is as firm as the foundations of the earth and yet as, is as messy as a manger. And when we can hold on to Jesus as firmly as we want to hold on to the Bible, we may have a faith that changes the world. Let me tell you a couple things that the Bible's not, and then I'll tell you a couple things that it is. Number one, it's not verbally inspired, mostly. There are people who believe or who have argued that the writers of the Bible didn't even know what they were writing. Their eyes just rolled back in their head and God controlled them and they wrote down what God told them to write. That, that's not how it came about. I mean, literally in the, the law books of Moses, it describes the story of Moses' death. And what these people have to be saying is that Moses narrated the story of his own death before he died. That would be a really good trick. It's just not what actually happened. On the other hand, the Bible's not just a ramshackled mess that people have put together and edited and changed through the centuries so that what we have is no longer trustworthy. There was a guy named Clement in Rome in 95 AD who quotes several different books of the Bible showing that a good chunk of the New Testament was already in his hands before the end of the first century. That the texts that we have go back to the original story. They haven't been passed down and changed through the ages. They are reliable. And so we live between these twin realities. It's not perfectly clear-cut, and yet it's not a disastrous mess. If you're offended by the idea that, that the Bible's a bit of a mess, you may lean towards Phariseeism. You may lean towards Bible camp. And the reality is, if you will cling to Jesus as fiercely as you cling to your Bible, you will have a faith that changes the world. If, on the other hand, you're offended by the idea that the Bible is truly foundational, that not a letter of it will disappear, you may lean towards sort of a, a pseudo-intellectual liberalized read on the Bible that doesn't, that can't be validated in history. I, I mean, the historical witness shows the fact that the, the New Testament story is the original story. Our call is to accept the fact that God is as firm as the foundation of the earth, and yet when he showed up, it was a mess. And yet, when he gives us his word, he doesn't break stride at all. He doesn't give us a clean, polished uh, vi vision that's just a simple read. He gives us a complex book of literature with which we are to engage our minds. And yet that book is as firm as the foundations of the earth and can guide us to everything we need for life and faith. What the Bible is, is it's necessary and it's sufficient. It's, it's necessary. We, we need the Bible to guide us through life. Jesus says it himself. It, it, not, a, not a letter of it will disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the, the least stroke of a pen. What he's saying is, it's, it's like 
the, uh, what I saw in a Greek Orthodox church when the Greek Orthodox priest walked down the aisle to begin the service, he walked in with a Bible in his hands, but instead of holding it down at, at chest level, he held the Bible up over his head and he walked down to the front of the church like this and placed the Bible on a table at the front of the room. And, and my friend who was Greek Orthodox told me the reason he holds it up is it's symbolic. It represents the fact that we know God through the scriptures and in turn, God speaks to us through the scriptures. We see God through what we read in the scriptures and God speaks to us through the scriptures. There's no way around the Bible to get to Jesus. If you think you've gotten around the Bible to God, what you've done is you've created an idol. The Bible is necessary. We can't get around it. And it's also sufficient. It tells us exactly what we need to know. Uh, you remember uh, when we began this series a few weeks ago, I said that my great fear about the Bible is not, that I, uh, is not from the things that I, I don't understand about it. My great fear from the Bible is the things I do understand about it. And I got that from Mark Twain. The, the Bible is sufficient to tell us what we need to live life on God's terms. So here's an image that a friend of mine used, a guy named Earl Palmer. Uh, and I wrote this uh, sermon a couple weeks ago as I was thinking about him. Uh, and a few days after that, I found out that he had just... Uh, gone to heaven. And so I, uh, I perhaps wrote this in his honor, not realizing that he was going uh, that week. But he used to say that the way we ought to cling to the Bible is a lot like how the Bay Bridge in San Francisco is structured. You know, the Bay Bridge is anchored to the ground in just a few points. And yet up at the top, it's designed to sustain an earthquake so that if, if the ground shakes, the top of the bridge sways back and forth. Uh, he always used to tell this joke. He said, in fact, people would go up there to jump off the bridge and the bridge would swing over and pick them up again. Right? The, the bridge is anchored to the ground at just a few points and at the top, it's built to be flexible. And Earl Palmer would say, that's how our faith should be. Our faith should be rooted in just a few points at what is the, the essentials of Christi uh, Christianity, orthodox faith, mere Christianity, that God walked the earth was born among us, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. There are essentials which we should hold to firmly. And yet in many of the questions and ambiguities of life, instead of being fiercely rigid, we ought to be flexible. Because when, when the earth shakes beneath us, if we are rigid, we'll snap. Instead, in things that are inessential. We approach the Bible and life with a certain degree of flexibility, understanding that when God was born on the earth, God was as firm as the earth's foundations and yet as messy as a manger. And that's the right way to view the scriptures. I hope that's helpful for you. Again, my reading challenge for the season to come Pick up the Bible. If you've never read a book of it before, read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. If you've read one of the Gospels, read the New Testament. If you read a chapter a day, you'll be done by Christmas. Read the New Testament. And if you've already read the New Testament, take on the big challenge. And by next Easter, you can read the whole Bible if you just read three chapters a day, about a page and a half. Start today, page and a half a day, you can read the whole Bible in a year. That is my challenge for you. Immerse yourself in God's Word. Cling to it fiercely. And cling to Jesus all the more fiercely still. Because when we cling to Jesus as, clearly, as fiercely as some of us cling to our Bibles, we will have a faith that changed the world.
Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for calling us to, to wrestle through the challenges of a messy world. Thank you that instead of abandoning a messy world, you were born into it. And in being born into this mess, you showed us how to live. That we might cling fiercely and firmly to you. And yet live with open hearts and hands, knowing that with you, the world is not a threat to us. Jesus, bless those people out there today who are just beginning their explorations of the Bible and who want to know more. Open their hearts and minds that in your word they might find you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.